I'm just letting the folks in the booth know that I'm going to go off script for a moment, so you don't freak out. A um, couple of thoughts about Father's Day. This morning I received uh, an email from a friend of mine that said, read this through, and this friend is recently retired. He's about 67, 68 years old, but he writes an award-winning column on fly fishing. And this gets picked up by a number of magazines. And he was talking about some of his favorite fly fishing spots, but he said in his most recent time when he was out alone in this one private spot that he goes to, he started thinking about all the men in his life. And he acknowledged that he didn't really have a father growing up. His father left their family when he was about two or three years old. And, and the few times that he connected with his father, it wasn't good for, for many, many years. But then he started thinking about the number of men who worked in his life nonetheless. Uh, there was one guy who was a father of a friend of his who always made sure to include him in a number of the things that they were doing ar around uh, the house and their activities. And then he talked about an uncle who stepped in and his uncle always had a word of advice for him and sometimes a, a horse collar around the neck at just the right moment. And then he mentioned Mr. Atwater. It's my dad. And I think, you know, my dad's been gone for 16 years. I don't hear people talk about my dad. But he said, my, Mr. Atwater was the first one who said, you're going to need Jesus in your life. And that got his attention, and he started thinking about that. Then he got to college, and his roommate's father was nearby, and he'd been a high school football coach, and he included him in everything that, that they did as a family. He said, it was the first time I saw how a whole family works together. And he listed all of these men who'd made a difference in his life over the last... 50 or 60 years, and then he went back to fly fishing. And I'm wondering, okay, how are men all across the country going to read this with the spiritual influence in the midst of this? And then, then I read this quote from Steve Farrar. Steve Farrar is kind of uh, the Derek Churchill of authors. He writes men's stuff. And in his book, Standing Tall, he wrote this. A godly father is the unseen spiritual submarine who lurks below the surface of every activity of his child's life. I love that concept. The unseen spiritual submarine below the surface. He went on to say, a man who has put on the full armor of God and with that armor goes to warfare on his knees for his children is a force to be reckoned with that we cannot, because we cannot be with our children 24 hours a day, but through our prayers we have the ability to affect situations even when we are not physically present. You may be undetected, but that does not mean that you are ineffective. Isn't that an awesome line? You may be undetected, but it does not mean that you are ineffective. When you pray for your kids, you are a spiritual submarine below the surface, but still dangerous. I love it. Let me pray for all the dads in the room here this morning. Father God, thank you for Father's Day. We are looking forward to fun with the cars and all the folks who will come up here on our campus today. But I pray for the spiritual impact that we are able to make. There's not a single one of us that has had a perfect father other than you. And yet we long to be an influence in the lives of others. So whether we are... Uh, fathering figures to those who don't have fathers or who need that extra voice in their lives, whether we are appreciating the fathers we've had in the past or we are thinking about the long-term impact on our own children and our own families. Lord, I pray that you will make us effective and that you will work through our prayers and through our encouragements. And I ask that you will bless all the dads who are here today. Allow them to know that they're not forgotten and that you are sending us this message that 
the long-term impact of what we contribute positively lingers and it shows fruit in columns like the ones that my friend wrote for this morning. Guide us this morning and the rest of this service in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read from John chapter 20 this morning. This is John 20, starting with verse 24. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, that's the wrong one. I've got the wrong text on there. Sorry about that. Yours is wrong on the front of that page. That's last Sunday's. So, John 20, 24 to 31 is uh, not on the front of your notes, but it's in my notes. Uh, now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This morning we're going to talk about the greatest victory that we read about in the scriptures. Think about it. This past Friday night, many of us had our hopes up in regard to this year's Boston Celtics. We hoped that they would come out with their best effort and push the Golden State Warriors to a seventh game final in the NBA Championship Series. That hope lasted for about eight or nine minutes on Friday night. As the Celtics took an early lead, but then the wheels began to fall off the wagon. And the victory that we were looking for instead belonged to the Warriors, and it really belonged to them on Friday night. There will be no seventh game to interfere with our Father's Day celebrations today. The Celtics came farther, though, than we ever thought that they would earlier in this year, but this great step forward that they made this season ended in defeat. In defeat. The Warriors, I think, knew something that the young Celtics are only beginning to learn now. The Warriors won their fourth championship in the, in the past eight years on Friday night. But, but that's only part of the story. The truth is that they've gone to the NBA Finals uh, six times in those eight years, which means that they experienced the kind of devastating defeat that the Celtics experienced on Friday twice in the last eight years. Part of what made their resolve deeper and stronger was born in losing the finals those two times. Soccer great Pele, remember Pele from Brazil? He said, the more difficult the victory, the greater the happiness in winning. When we started this series back in April, I mentioned that an older, wiser pastor had given a challenge to a group of pastors that I'm part of. He said, if you had only 10 weeks left in your current ministry setting, what 10 messages do you think that your congregation needs to hear? What are the things that are bursting from your heart that you would want to deliver? And so I started doodling on a pad of paper back in February or March when he gave that challenge. And this thought of only God 
kept coming back into my thinking as I was cycling through different snapshots from the Gospels and other parts of the Bible. What are the things that only the presence of God or the interference of God can explain? And so this series began to roll out piece by piece, linked by that theme of only God. This morning, I'd like to wrap up this series by focusing on the greatest victory of all time. And so that's our topic for this morning. So let me give you my welcome to North River for today. I want to say happy Father's Day to all the, the dads who are with us today. Uh, this car show idea came about a, a number of years ago, five, six, seven years ago, when we were trying to find something that dads and grandfathers inside the church and outside the church would be able to enjoy. And when we linked this idea that the youth ministry at the time was thinking of, of having a car show here, I said, what if we put that together with Father's Day and we create an event where people who wouldn't normally darken the doors of our church show up all over our campus? And so I'm hoping that today is one of those days when we mingle with our neighbors and where we just get to be a part of that presence as we're bringing joy to people and to families all over the South Shore. I want to welcome those of you who are with us online this morning as well. Thank you for being a part of this whole deal. We work hard to try and be one church in many locations on these days, now that we know that you're watching from home. And I hope that you will take the time to connect with us, that you will fill out a connection card, or that you will in some way let us know that your presence is a part of what we're doing this morning. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can text the word hello to this number, 781-227-8765. What that does is it sends a text message that ultimately makes its way to me. We'll we'll give you a a response with a text back. And whatever information you give us, whether it's just a, a phone number or an email, we'll try and respond to you. And if you actually give us a physical address, we will actually write you a handwritten letter. We'd love to begin the conversation with you. Or you can go to our website, northriverchurch.org, and if you look at the top button, there's something that says, I'm new. And if you click on that, it'll link you to an online connection card. Or if you're here in the room today, you can go over to the Welcome Center and ask for a connection card and fill that out manually, and we'll begin to follow up with you and begin the conversation. So here's the question that I'm thinking about this morning at the beginning of this message. David talked for a moment ago about the resurrection. And the resurrection is not just a topic for Easter Sunday. The whole foundation of Christian theology hangs on whether the resurrection is true or not. So, why is the resurrection the greatest victory for a Christian? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Five reasons that I'd like to walk you through. The first is, it thwarted Jesus' enemies. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter uh, 27, we read these words, The next day, after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, isn't that a great name for Jesus? They were showing themselves the enemies of Jesus. That deceiver, they said, um, said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be sealed until the third day. Do you ever notice this? The seal on the tomb of Jesus was the idea of Jerusalem's religious leaders. A collection of the chief priests and the Pharisees had come to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and they said, we want you to do this for us. When they put Jesus in that tomb, so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had asked for the body of Jesus to be brought down. Joseph laid Jesus' body in his own personal tomb that he prepared for himself. 
And he said, seal it. Put a, put a huge wax seal on the stone there so that if anybody moves it, they're breaking the Roman law and they're defying the expectations of the Roman governor. It was the idea of the religious leaders. They were afraid that something was going to happen. Now, they were opposed to Jesus during his ministry life and they were opposed to him in his death as well. They plotted because they wanted to hold on to power. They plotted because they feared the way that Jesus had demonstrated authority through his teaching, and they feared that the disciples would try to steal the body away and that they would try to claim victory out of the ashes of defeat. Well, the disciples weren't going to do that. They'd run away. They were in hiding. But the power of God did that. And the resurrection of Jesus thwarted the plotting of those who had made themselves Jesus' enemies. Here's the second reason why this was the greatest victory. It firmly establishes Jesus as the Messiah. In John chapter 20, the passage I read a moment ago, the final two verses read this way. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Here's the purpose statement of the entire Gospel of John. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's Gospel includes seven miraculous signs that point to Jesus' identity. A few times we've done a whole series on those seven signs. I'm not going to go through them all this morning. But the final sign was the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection identifies Jesus as the master of life and death. He could lay down his life knowing that God would raise him to life again. John also writes that these signs were given so that we may specifically believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Why is that title, Messiah, so important? Well, it, it literally means the chosen one of God, one who is appointed for a specific task. In the Greek language, that word Messiah was translated as Christos. So in our language, in English, it becomes Christ. But every time we use the word, uh, the name Jesus Christ, we are acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. He was the chosen one of God who was appointed to bring about the redemptive work on God, of God on our behalf. Before the time of Jesus, the rabbis around Israel were aware of Isaiah 53's promise of the suffering servant. And here's the way that they began to break that down. They concluded that there must be two messiahs. There's one messiah who's talked about in the Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 53, who's going to come and suffer and die for his people. Some of those rabbis said, this is really a personification of Israel. This is the role of Israel, that Israel as a nation suffers. And then they concluded that there was another Messiah who would come later on who would be the ruling Messiah who would come and defeat the power of the Romans and who would set up his kingdom on earth. Now, not all Jews are aware of this kind of talk today, but there are sects of Jews who actually believe this. Uh, for instance, the ultra-Orthodox Lubavitcher Jews in, in New York believe that Chief Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, who died in 1994, was the Messiah. And there are many of them who are waiting for Schneerson to come back because they felt he was the greatest teacher of their time. The resurrection of Jesus establishes him as both the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and also as the ruling, conquering Messiah who is coming again. And he demonstrated his power and his authority 
by taking up his life again and defeating the power of death. Through his resurrection, he conquered sin and death for us. When he returns, he will deal the final blow to evil and to the evil one, and he will set up his eternal and physical kingdom, and he will gather his own. But today he reigns on high on the throne of God. And here's an illustration of that to Messiah theory. It's the work of Dr. Daniel Botkin, congregational leader of Gates of Eden Messianic Congregation. In other words, these are Jews who believe in Jesus in East Peoria, Illinois. And so they had the idea that there's this one Messiah who would come and then there'd be a second one. It's Jesus who links both of these thoughts together. I didn't know that there were Jewish people today who are still talking about the returning Messiah. Most of the Jewish people I've met have given up on the idea of a Messiah. But it kind of shows both roles that Jesus played as the suffering servant and also as the one who's coming again to rule with authority and to gather his own. So again, the question that we're looking at is why is the resurrection the greatest victory of Jesus? And we've looked at two reasons so far. The first reason is that it thwarted his enemies. The second is that it firmly establishes Jesus as the Messiah. Here's the third. It demonstrates the power of the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, we read these two words beginning with, two verses beginning with verse 14. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He is telling us that the resurrection declares that Jesus' victory on the cross was in effect. If you think about it, last week I talked about this certificate of debt that was nailed over a prisoner's cell in the Roman system when a prisoner was thrown into jail and all of the charges against that person would be written on that certificate of debt. When time was fully served, the judge would then take that certificate, would sign it, and then would write the word tetelestai, which means paid in full. You can never again have to be jailed for these particular crimes. The Apostle Paul links now that same concept here in Colossians chapter 2. And he tells us that Jesus has done this for us through his work on the cross. He says that he has taken our debt and this, uh, the, the, he, the, he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. That's talking about that certificate of debt from the Roman system. And that our debt has been paid, our debt to sin. And that charge can never be brought against those who believe in Jesus because he has paid that debt in full. He nailed the certificate to the cross. That's the language Paul is using. So the resurrection allows us to see that Jesus disarmed all of the authorities, spiritual and political, who are against him, that he triumphed over them by the cross, and he has made a public spectacle of their attempts to thwart the plan of God. And then he mentions that he has done this by the blood of the cross. There's a song that we sometimes sing around here, Oh, the power of the blood. Oh, the power of the cross. I've been asked every once in a while for people who aren't familiar with church, do Christians have this obsession with blood? Why do we sing about blood? And they're kind of weird. But the reason that we do that is not that we're gory and bloody people, but we're singing about the power of the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross to pay for our sin. And our freedom and victory was won through the death of Jesus on the cross. So next time we sing that song and it calls out, Oh, the power of the blood, Go back to the sacrifice of Jesus and recognize that he was paying for our sins with his own body and with his own blood. 
and that we're singing about his victory when we do that. Here's the fourth reason why this is the greatest victory. It transforms skeptics and doubters. This is why I wanted to read from uh, John chapter 20. Verses 26 to 28 say, A week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Thomas had earlier said that there was no way that he was going to believe that Jesus had been risen from the dead unless he could see with his own eyes, touch with his own hands, the wounds of Jesus. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Notice what he does, very next verse. Then he said to Thomas, so he's barely in the room, he says to the whole group, Peace be with you. He looks at Thomas. Jesus wasn't in the room when Thomas had said what he did about not believing, but Jesus knew. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it also into my side. That's where the spear had gone in and nicked his heart. And then he says, stop doubting and believe. Jesus wasn't casting shame on him for doubting, but he was saying, here's the evidence. There's no reason for you to keep doubting. Thomas responds and he says, my Lord and my God. I love the story of Thomas after the resurrection. He missed the first appearance to Jesus, of Jesus to his disciples. He wasn't going to just buy the account of Mary Magdalene as passionate she was. That wasn't enough for him to have one witness. And then Jesus appears to him a week later. He shows him his wounds. He shows him the, the, the holes in his hands and his feet. And he invites Thomas, if he needs to, to even touch the wounds, to put his hand in his side. And then he gives him this challenge. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas believed because he had seen the evidence of the resurrected Jesus. The evidence moved him from skeptic to believer. There is a place for reformed skeptics and doubters in Jesus' kingdom. And very often they are very, very powerful in the way that they use their stories. Jesus even declares that there is a blessing for those who are not able to see physically what Thomas saw and yet who believe based on the testimony of those who did see Jesus and did walk with Jesus after his death and resurrection. If you are doubting, I want to raise a question for you. Have you fully considered and analyzed the evidence? Faith isn't a leap into the dark. Faith is a reasonable step forward based on the evidence we can examine. And there's a whole lot of testimonial evidence that we have in the New Testament from even people like Thomas who were skeptics at first and didn't believe right away, but who saw Jesus and whose lives were transformed from that moment on. The resurrection is the most critical thing that transforms people. I remember a number of years ago, I had a friend who had started coming with his wife and, and his wife was a passionate believer and he was an atheist. And it was getting in the way of their marriage. It was causing a lot of trouble because he would scoff at all of the ideas that were getting to uh, want to grow forward in her life with, with her love for the Lord. But he finally agreed to start coming here to North River. And we built a friendship and I gave him a couple of books to read and, and we would talk every once in a while. One day he came over for, for Sunday dinner after church and we're sitting there and our wives are working in the kitchen doing some stuff and we were in the dining room and he said to me very quietly so his wife wouldn't hear. I've kind of figured something out from the books you've given me to read. I said, okay, what have you figured out? He said, I've figured out that 
there's a critical path to understanding Jesus. I said, okay, this sounds good. I said, what's the critical path? He said, it's, it's really this. I've been working on all of these other things that are, I find hard to believe about Jesus, but if Jesus really came out of the tomb that day, then everything else is a piece of cake. I thought, you're onto something here. You're right. That's the hardest nut to crack. And you're right, if Jesus really came out of the tomb, virtually all of the other miraculous things pale in comparison. We were talking about a month later, and he was at work, and he had closed the door to his office. He didn't want anybody to hear me. He was whispering into his phone. And he said, last night, I made that shift in my mind. I realized that the pile of evidence that I was reading about Jesus was higher than the pile of my doubts. And I decided last night I was going to stand on the pile of evidence rather than on the pile of doubts. I said, that's it. That's the point at which your faith shifted from skepticism to really believing in Jesus. It's a logical step to what you can know, to what you can uh, process. Here's the fifth reason. It proves the goodness of God. John 3.16 is the most, well, most often quoted verse of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 combines both the love of God and God's decision to send his Son on this dangerous rescue mission that ultimately led to his death. A good friend of mine a number of years ago came to me in tears. And he finally explained... He said, I, I have this dilemma. I, I love Jesus. When I read about Jesus in the New Testament, I realize that Jesus is the greatest friend that I've ever had. Jesus has loved me more than anybody I've ever known. But here's my dilemma. I don't think I can love God. So, whoa, why? I don't get it. He said, how can I love the God who sent the friend who loves me more than anybody else in the world to his death? And for him, this was a serious intellectual struggle that he was stuck on. And I've thought about that a number of times over the years. His dilemma was that he didn't believe that God was truly good if God sent the person he loves most, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. The relief to that dilemma, I believe, is the resurrection. God did not simply send his son into the world to die. It would be an awful story if it ended at the cross, but it doesn't. He sent his son to die with the promise that he would raise him up again. So this was a huge faith test for Jesus. Jesus had never died a physical death. Jesus had never had a physical body until he had been born in Bethlehem that day, even though he had existed as the eternal son of God long before he took on human life. But just like with you and me, Jesus is forevermore located within a human body. When we see him, he will be recognizable. He will have that resurrected body that Thomas saw. And he had to go through the risk of dying on the cross, believing that his father, who is all good, had this plan and had the power to raise him from the dead. So he sent his son to die with the promise that he would raise him up again. It became a huge faith test for Jesus. And in that way, the resurrection of Jesus is the necessary completion to the victory of Jesus that was begun on the cross. 
The resurrection proves the goodness of the very God who sent Jesus because God fulfilled his promise to Jesus when he raised him on the third day. The Father knew that if Jesus completed his mission, that his power to raise him would complete that victory over sin and death and evil. When we sing that God is our good, good Father, it's with that thought in mind that he knows how to give give good gifts to his people. And even if God gives you a difficult assignment, and think of this, there are difficult assignments that Christians get. Not every Christian gets to live in the United States of America where we are not opposed. There are Christians who live in very difficult places in this world, and all the disciples, with the exception of John, died violent deaths for the cause of Christ. If he gives you a difficult assignment, he will follow through on his promises to you. And the ultimate promise is that one day he will raise us all at the end, and we will be given these new resurrected bodies. We will be like Jesus when we see him. There is life beyond the grave, and Jesus is the forerunner, the first in line among many. The resurrection proves the goodness of God to Jesus and to us that there is nothing that is able to stop the power and the hand of God to redeem his people in love. Here's the big idea for this morning. The resurrection was God's declaration of victory through the cross of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is so important for you and me. Like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if he was not resurrected from from the dead, then all of our faith is in vain. But because he is, we have every hope for the future. We have every hope for eternity. And if you're sitting on the fence wondering about whether to put your faith in him, look to the resurrection of Jesus. Look to the ability of God to fulfill even the most difficult of promises. He came through. He will come through for you and me as well. Let's pray and then let's celebrate the rest of this day. Father God, thank you for the opportunity for us to gather here in this place and to be reminded of the foundation of our faith. That the foundation of our faith is in this good, good Father. You, the one who has sent Jesus into the world on our behalf and the one who raised him from the dead for his sake and for our sake. Allow us to trust and to believe that you are a God who keeps his promises And because you kept your promises to Jesus, you will keep your promises to us. It's your character. It's who you are. And we are so blessed to be the beneficiaries of this great love. Lord, we ask that you will bless all the fathers who walk onto this campus today, whether they believe in you or not, whether they have hope in you or not, and allow us to have an impact on them just in the way that we encourage and welcome with warmth. And if the conversations lead that way, why we explain the reasons for our hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.